Amen. When Lucretia does announcements, you wait to be called up. It is the way you do things properly. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Josh, as Lucretia said, the lead pastor here at Elm City Vineyard. I'm going to jump into our talk today, which is our last talk in a series called The Blood Cries Out. In early 2021, a small painting went up at the law school of Catholic University of America. It was this painting called Mama. This painting features a pose called Pieta, where Mother Mary holds the body of her dead son, Jesus. The most famous depiction of this is one that Michelangelo did in a statue. This painting, Mama, went up without fanfare at the university. That is, until someone discovered Jesus is black. Someone noticed that Jesus is black in this painting, and also that Jesus looks you know, conspicuously like George Floyd in this painting as well, the one who was murdered while crying out for his mother. A petition went out for the painting's removal, and then the painting was stolen. They put it back up, a new painting. Then that one was stolen too. And then the student body voted for there to be no more paintings like this ever put up again, citing blasphemy. The university president, who initially had written, you know, some like kind of glowing thing about this painting and how great it was, then backtracked and said, actually, I'm just really sorry that it's caused so much controversy and agreed with that ruling decision and it has never been up since in that school. In some ways, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Pieta pose always causes a confrontation because it's a mother, a mother holding a slain son, asking, why does life have to be this way? A mother saying, why is my son not alive? A mother saying, why is the savior of the world dead? On a day that we celebrate the power of a mother's love, we should realize the protest of a mother is a powerful thing. But the pose in this particular painting goes one step further because Mary is looking at us. In most Pieta paintings or sculptures, the mother is looking down. Mary's looking down at her son, her dead son. But here, Mary's looking at us, the viewer. The artist in an article about this whole incident says, Mary's almost asking you, what are you going to do so this doesn't keep happening again? Unsettling indeed. In our corner of the world, we've always had discomfort sacramentalizing who we see as the undeserved dead. Do you all remember back, you know, several years ago, 2014, 2015, 2016, when the debate that we were having in our country about um, police and police killing was always, did the person deserve it? Was Mike Brown really a thug? Was Eric Garner really a thug? Was Freddie Gray really a thug? I remember preaching in that season of our church about the thug Saul, who Todd mentioned was, was a persecutor of the early church, who killed Jesus' good friends, 
and then happened to write about a quarter of the New Testament after a miraculous conversion. I wanted to preach in that moment several years ago that there was hope for us, all of us, even the ones of us with a thuggish past and the ones of us that so accused others based on their past misdeeds. After all, according to the writer of Ephesians, who in that first part says, you know, I'm Paul, we're all looking pretty bad in the big scheme of things. We can see here in Ephesians 2, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We were thugs, dead in our sin, living only according to the desires of the flesh. But God, in his mercy, made us alive. And even though it's through grace, we actually are created for good works that God's done, God's prepared in us before the beginning of time. Thugs with a new story, a new purpose. It doesn't and there, there's more. There's more scripture about this good stuff. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed, peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints, and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. I remember preaching this passage after no one was indicted in the case of Mike Brown's murder. I preached about our need for God to be justice when our justice fails. About our need to remember that the way of repentance is our way and we desperately need it. That if Saul was able to transform his thuggish past, maybe we too could be people who remain. We who are far off can come near through the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, the blood that cries out for peace. That was several years ago. Some people, just, just a few, at least those that told me, didn't like that sermon. <laughs> they didn't see it as biblical 
they thought Mike Brown was just a thug. So why are we mentioning him in a church service? Brian Stevenson, a lawyer and author of Just Mercy, speaks the truth powerfully, saying, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And to be honest, I usually hear most people agreeing with that, but with an unspoken add-on. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, but don't get carried away. Today we're going to talk about how the gospel of Jesus is God getting carried away. We're going to talk about how the gospel always incorporates justice and mercy and extends further, further into mercy showing up and looking like something, something that has the power to turn thugs into saints. We're going to talk about how the gospel recruits the dead to be evangelists for life. We're going to talk about how the gospel transforms the heartbreak of Babylon, this ancient city and future city, it's weird, the city of death, and turns it into a call to faithfulness. This is God getting carried away, letting those dead in sin be saved by grace to do good works, even though we were far off. The blood of Christ draws near, for he is our peace who has broken down the dividing wall so thugs and saints alike can have access to the Father. This is the power of this phrase, the blood cries out. And as we begin to end our series, let's pray. God, thanks so much for who you are, for your power, for your great love for us. Thank you for your good news, which is truly good for all of us. Be present today with power. Your power, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I told you that we're going to do kind of a sweeping uh, view of Scripture. And indeed, that is exactly what we're doing. We started in Genesis, where we witnessed the first murder in Scripture when Cain kills his brother Abel. God says the blood of Abel cries out. And in that crying out, the blood is actually spilt on the land. And Cain, who's a farmer, is worried. I've been rooted, I've been planted, but now... I have to run. And running as someone that has blood on his ledger, I don't know how I'm going to do this, God. And God puts a mark on his face to say, everyone will know that I am with you. God granting mercy to a murderer. A story of justice and a story of mercy. Last week, Matt shared about how God's own son, Jesus, was murdered. His blood, too, cries out. But unlike Abel's blood, which prompted justice from God, the blood of Jesus becomes an invitation for anyone to surrender, for anyone to say, that was me. Yes, I joined that crowd. I was part of killing Jesus, and I need mercy. I need acceptance. I need to surrender and come clean. Instead of coming back to life as a God of vengeance, Jesus comes back to life inviting people to confess the truth. They killed Jesus. They've done wrong. And to then receive mercy from his blood that cries out. A story of justice and mercy. How is a story of justice and mercy your story? How can you find it in your own life? As you think about the contours of your own choices, your own decisions, can you see how God has been a God of justice for you? 
but also a God of mercy. Is that a welcome balm for you? Does it have an unsettling sting to realize those things? Maybe you're just simply curious, wondering how justice and mercy will become parts of your, maybe as you would think, rather ordinary life. We have one more stop on our journey, this kind of lightning round through scripture from Genesis to the Gospels and Acts, and then to the book of Revelation. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, about the end of all things. It continues this trajectory, a story about justice and mercy. In this story, one of the big questions is, who is going to emerge as the hero? Who's going to emerge as the one that can save the day? that can do what needs to be done at the end of all things. The challenge in uh, the place we're going to pick up, Revelation chapter 5, is who can open this scroll? And Jesus reveals himself, not just as a common criminal, another thug on the cross, a common perception in his day, since Jesus just died as a common criminal, right, on the cross. Jesus reveals himself as something else, a slain lamb. Let's look at Revelation 5 together as we set up the rest of our time. This is in uh, verse 5, and we'll go to a little bit of 6, and uh, go to 9 and 10. Then one of, uh, and we're going to have a bunch of like revelation language, right? So there'll be elders, there'll be creatures, you know, just hang in as you can. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. And the lamb is described, the lamb does indeed open the, the scroll, and the people around say, they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That one voice says, look for the lion. And then what does the author John see? He sees a lamb instead. Sometimes when we're looking for surprising amounts of power that we want to defend us, justify us, help our cause, instead, Jesus shows up as a little slain lamb who died on the cross, just like a common criminal. And part of what he does is he's purchased for God persons from every tribe, from every nation, from every language, from every people. Not a healthy lamb, but a slain lamb, exposed, vulnerable, his story already apparent. You already kind of know a little bit about this slain lamb when you see him. And this slain lamb who we know is Jesus, who died on the cross as a thug, he finally becomes the only person who can remove us from our own judgment seat of saying who is good and who is bad, who is right and who is wrong, who is a thug and who's not. 
Through praising a slain lamb, we exalt life as it comes from death. And this has been the story of Scripture uh, so much all along. The story of the slain lamb that shows the power of life as it comes from death. We can think about these powerful verses and scriptures that we might know or remember. Maybe they'll be new to us. You know, in uh, Philippians, a, a letter that Paul wrote saying, For me to live is Christ, and to die is to gain. Jesus in the Gospel of John saying, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. We can think about what Lucretia mentioned earlier in baptism, that we actually go into the water representing death, and then we come out representing life. Our whole journey as Jesus followers goes closer to death. And then all of a sudden, through that paradox, we receive life. But if we just try to take life, usually it doesn't work out that way. Life, but coming through death. Are we ready to receive the call of mercy from a lamb we killed that says death is not the end? Are we ready to receive a gift from that kind of lamb? And as we think about it, how is our own life story, how is that story in the shape of a cross, and as we call it cruciform living, how is it near to death? There's a story I've shared here before. Um, it's a story from uh, the civil rights movement. And it's of uh, just an ordinary woman named Viola who heard a call after a few unsuccessful march attempts that were happening in Selma. The call actually came from MLK Jr. And he said, uh, we're struggling here. This isn't going well. You've probably seen that, whether it's little kids getting you know, hit by a hose, whether it's people being beat up, he said, we're struggling, and, and you can probably see and recognize that. So I'm calling people of conscience, people of faith, to come. To actually come with their bodies down to Selma. Come and be part of turning this around. Viola heard that on the TV. And she looked at her husband, she looked at her kids, and she said, I, I need to go. I'm the one he's calling. I need to get down to Alabama coming from the northern states. And so she went. She didn't come with a strong plan. She didn't come uh, with this sense of, like, I'm going to speak. I, I know how to do organizing. I know how to do these things. Like, not at all. What she did mostly was watch kids so others could do different kinds of work. She cooked so people could have meals in large groups and be together. She drove people, gave rides. And if you know the story, they won eventually. She went to Montgomery, celebrated a victory in their 54-mile walk from Selma to Montgomery, and then she came back. This was like hours after they had had this victorious kind of moment on the steps of the capital of Montgomery. She was driving a black man home, Leroy, as a white woman. And the KKK pulled up in a car next to her, and they shot into the window, and their car veered off. And the KKK pulled over as well, went into the car to see how we killed them. This dangerous couple, right? A white woman and a black man. Have we done the job? And they saw both people covered in blood. And they said, yes, we did. And they moved along. Except Leroy wasn't dead. 
he got up, he got out, he lived a life. He was covered in Viola's blood, who had passed away. We see in this slain life the power to save someone else, to give them a, a new story at the face of death. She thought she was just doing childcare and cooking and, and coming in, but it, it turned out that there was a different kind of act that God had called her to do, that something was required of her that she probably, I'm not sure if she was, would have said yes to, but that's what the moment was for her. It's the power of love, the power of dying, but then producing life, not just life for Leroy, but life for us as we hear that story and experience the power of it. It's no surprise then that God has a heart for the slain, but even those whose stories are ended by violence without such obvious redemption, even those stories are lifted up in scripture, lifted up in Revelation, and I think really surprising and challenging ways. We get the first hint in this story about Revelation 18, that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. It's a story of Babylon, this city, like I said, that's a city of death. And Revelation 18 is all about the fall of Babylon, how it's going away, how kings and rulers had flirted with this city, how merchants had partnered with it to become wealthy, but that its name was up and it was finally done. There's a passage that talks about everything that was bought and sold in this city. And as you can see, it's these linens and purple and gold and frankincense. And at the very end, we start to get things that are living, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages. And then the last little phrase is what stings. Human beings sold as slaves. And in the Greek, what it says is it's bodies, which often is translated as slaves. It says bodies are what was sold. And then the next part in the Greek is, and souls. Because the Bible's trying to remind us, it wasn't just a body. It wasn't just a slave, but it was a soul. Because God sees bodies as made in his image, as filled with a soul and life and spirit. And those were traded in Babylon. It's an ordinary list, but we're supposed to see something, to notice something. Because God cares about humanity, so it pains him when they are slain. And in this next part of scripture, we see three things very clearly about the slain. That the slain are evangelists for life. The slain cry out against Babylon, the empire of death. And the slain cry out for justice and mercy of God. And they lead us towards lives of faithfulness. I just want to spend a few more minutes talking about this before we get into some invitations. And as we see how the slain do this, we'll need to ask ourselves the question, I think Cindy might have asked this of herself and maybe to us too, like are we close? Are we proximate? Are we near? Can we hear this cry? Are we close to these realities or are we far away? Jesus is near to the brokenhearted and he's near to the dying. Do we join him there? Are we far away? Revelation gives us an invitation to get close through the blood crying out. Now at the end of all things, when Babylon falls, here's what will happen. 
the great city of Babylon will be thrown down. It'll be thrown down with great violence. With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And we see what's kind of never going to happen. There'll be never music again, uh, harpists, new musicians, never working of any trade, the sound of any millstone, the light of a lamp will never shine upon Babylon again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. And again, we get the line that's a kicker towards the end. In her, in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, sometimes translated as saints. And then, lastly, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Three categories. Prophets of God. God's holy people, also translated as saints. And then anyone who's been killed, slaughtered. Anyone that has been a homicide victim. They all cry out against Babylon. Turns out that the blood of thugs gets to witness against Babylon, along with God's holy people, the prophets and saints. Like I said, I think God got a little carried away, right? A little bit too merciful, right? A little bit too inclusive of who can cry out against Babylon. And the good news is that these people shout out that death is not the end. So why do the slain get to testify against Babylon? I think it's three reasons, and I've shared them before, and I'll just go over them quickly right now. The slain are evangelists for life. When people are killed, whether it's in our city of New Haven, people like Brian Fox or Kieran Jones or Jorge Delgado, the folks that have been killed this year in New Haven, their blood cries out. We hear that their life is cut too short, that a system of death that often impacts young people was at work. We hear that there was so much more ahead of them. The slain testified to life, that we want them alive, that we wanted them alive. We want to see them healthy and well. The death isn't good. And this is true in New Haven, but it's true all over the world. It's true in Ukraine. It's true in Ethiopia. It's true in any place the slain are piling up their bodies, the work of Revelation would say, their souls testify to life. They say life matters, that they shouldn't have died. They're evangelists for life, even in death. They also cry out against Babylon. Homicides often do the work of revealing the power or principality behind a death. The spirit of vengeance the spirit of competition, the spirit of supremacy, the slain cry out with prophets and God's holy people that the way of death is vain and empty compared to the way of life. Abel's blood did this. Jesus' blood did this. And so does the blood of every homicide. It cries out that this is not the way of life. This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of Jesus. It's the way of Babylon. Their blood cries out against Babylon. And lastly, the slain cry out for justice and the mercy of God that lead us, those who remain, to lives of faithfulness. As we see Babylon falling, we're inspired to hold on and to trust not in vengeance, but to trust the slain lamb, that that's how we overcome the violence of the world. Not by picking up a weapon, but by kneeling down 
submitting to this slain lamb. We can hear their cry, the cry of the slain against Babylon, the city of death, that is going to fall. And we can hold on remembering that life is short, that life is lived best when we show up like a slain lamb, not like a powerful lion. That life continues to push us out of that judgment seat. Life pushes us away from the tendency to judge who is a thug and who's not. And instead just cling to life in the face of death. I want to do just a few more things before we worship. This message, this word has been on my heart is I've seen so much death around all of us the last few years. And I've wondered how do we process that as people of faith, as people of the way of Jesus. One of those lives that affected me was the life of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her sleep. Uh, Vanity Fair, which I don't think I've ever read before this, did this amazingly creative thing where they put her on the cover. If you've been to my house, you know that this is one of the faces that greets you right on the mantle. And they dressed her up like she's one of the most important people there ever was. And in it, I saw the work of God, the creativity of saying someone is important whose life was taken away. And around September, trying to reflect on that time, I just wrote something. I'm going to read it for you. Turn off the TV. These are Brianna Taylor's last words, according to Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend. They contain an unknowing invitation. Turn off the TV. Some of us have already been unplugged for a minute. We're awake and hurting. We're acting and tired. We're trying to build community, doing the work that turns pain to slow healing, healing to solidarity, solidarity to meaningful, clear, and powerful actions that others can join to dismantle this violence in our land and in our hearts. For some, we need to hear Brianna's words again. Turn off the TV. Why? Because none of this is normal. My mom taught me something when I was a child. Josh, weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Her wisdom kept me from stomach ache to heartbreak to bullying. The morning light always did make it better, even if only slightly. Brianna Taylor never got that morning light this side of heaven. She was slain dreaming, and that guts me to the core. What happens when my mama's wisdom gets challenged by a kind of violence that doesn't even introduce itself, though it's in your own home? What happens when we have more faith for non-indictments than for justice? It makes me want the morning to be more than a new day, the same as it's been, just with more time passed on by. A new day has to mean more than that for the kind of joy we're looking for, the joy that radiates from the pictures of Breonna Taylor that we all now see in our disturbing and growing American scrapbook of lives lost to frenetic, wild, and uncontrolled power wielded by someone with a gun. Her joy should still be here, allowed to shine, grow, mature, and to join with others. It's not, and that disturbs me. It's caused me to move the TV to the shed, to put her Vanity Fair cover on my mantle, and to wake up knowing a new day won't do much 
if we don't fight for the joy that's already been promised? Then I asked myself and anyone else willing to listen two questions. What do you need to turn off to persevere in this fight? And what do you need to plug into to have a capacity for joy in your labor? This is the power of what the slain can do if we listen to their blood, if we bring it to God, if we say, God, what are you doing inside of me? The slain are varied in their makeup across time, ethnicity, any difference. What unites them is their cry for life, their cry against Babylon, their cry for justice and mercy. Whether they're slain like Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American in Metro Detroit, killed in a hate crime fueled by racial resentment, whether it's from sort of the, the book of Christian history, slain like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, arrested and killed for conspiracy to undermine the Nazi regime. Maybe it's local in our state, things we might not think about every day because of where we sit, but slain like the 26 kids and adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School, just 25 miles from where we're standing. Slain like Matthew Shepard, a gay man robbed and brutally beaten to death. Slain like Annie Lay, murdered at Yale in 2008. Unfortunately, I could keep going on. Names we know, names we don't know. You can add your own name here, maybe of your beloved one, your own slain life that you've held on to over the years, as you've tried to make sense of how do you bring these things to God. We see in the scripture that the slain speak life. The slain crowd against Babylon. The slain crowd for justice and mercy of God, leading us to lives of faithfulness. Last questions for us. Do we hear them? Are we listening? Are we near to the slain in our city or in the world? We're trying to do things as a church, even the liturgy of homicide that happened yesterday, seeing our kids, our sprouts and roots, picking up dirt, representing the body, putting it on the ground, and trying to listen to the violence that's happened. We've got to find ways to get close. If we're people following a slain lamb, we must get closer to death, however uncomfortable it is, whether it's in our vocational lives of healing and mending the body, pursuing justice across the globe, getting near to conflict that can so easily become violence. Maybe it's the after hours of our work, raising our own peacemakers in our homes, maybe other kids that we're seeing, speaking peace in their lives. Maybe it's trying to give something to someone where something has been lost, freedom for those incarcerated, security for those homeless, a country for those who are refugees or immigrants. We must become closer to those dying or near death. The Pieta can be our North Star. Are we like Mother Mary cradling the dead in our arms? bringing bodies, no, bringing souls, bringing stories to the God of resurrection who's been carried away with the mercy that he's offered, the goodness that he has for us. Can we cry out alongside their blood, crying for life against the systems of death, for justice and mercy? Are we crying with the prophets, the saints and the slains? We need to cry out and to accept a kind of re-centering, to let the slain lamb be the center, to let the slain lamb be the judge instead of sitting on the judgment seat like I think we might be comfortable doing. As we worship together, let's listen to the slain lamb. It's the one who we're singing to. 
So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and just give us a few invitations. This first set are just some reflective questions for us. As resurrection people, where are you committed to remain close to death and dying? You know, the drift happens in our spiritual lives, right? So unless we're committed, unless we choose, we probably will drift away from this call. What would it mean for us to commit to remain close? Where are you tempted to define who is a thug and sit on a judgment seat? Can you receive a parent's love for the criminals in your eyes, no matter who they are? Let God fill you with compassion, with justice, and with mercy. Where are you condemning of yourself, and where do you need life instead of judgment? Maybe for you, the finger points in, and you need to receive life where you often maybe judge yourself. And lastly, where do you need to embrace icons of the slain that can speak against Babylon, speak for life, speak of the slain lamb? This is definitely a part of like our faith tradition, but sometimes it can become uncomfortable for us. Whose death might move you to live differently? Think about who that is. And then there's just some practical things that should be familiar to you. Our nonviolence crew is a place you can join to ask me how to help out with the next liturgy of homicide. There's one more we're doing. Hopefully it'll be one more for the whole year, just three so far for 2022. And then lastly, continue to pray to be a peacemaker. And then when there's conflict that comes up, don't be surprised, but ask God for wisdom about how to pursue peace. I'm going to uh, pray for God's spirit to come, to be near to us. Holy Spirit, would you come with your power? This is a heavy word, but it is your word, and it is a good word. God, as we call forth your spirit to comfort us, to be near to us, we ask for your power, we ask for your love, we ask for your goodness. We ask to listen and to listen closely to what you're doing in the world. Come and have your way. Spirit, come and have your way.